0: Welcome to On Publishing from the Binary Agency. This is Alex Field.
1: And this is Ingrid Beck. Every week, we talk to professionals from the world of publishing. Our goal is to educate, inspire, encourage, and inform.
0: Let's get started.
1: On this episode of On Publishing, we talk with Andrew Stoddard, lead acquisition editor at Waterbrook and Multnomah, a division of Penguin Random House. Andrew has been in the industry for about five years um, prior to Waterbrook and Multnomah. Um, He spent about a year at David C. Cook, another small publishing company. Prior to that, he was working at Christianity Today magazine. And then he also was an adjunct professor for a while. So he's had a lot of diverse experience in a short time. Um, Andrew's a good friend of ours. And we really, really enjoyed this conversation.
0: This is a conversation that I, expect will be helpful for anyone uh, wondering about what an acquisitions editor does, um, how they spend their day, uh, how they find the books and the authors that they want to work with. And, and I think importantly, even if um, you're not writing a book for the spiritual nonfiction market, which is where Andrew works, um, this will give you a sense of what, a, what an editor like him is looking for uh, what makes them believe in a project enough to to really you know take the risk and make a big offer on a book? Um, he talks about that from an editorial perspective from a platform perspective uh, and from a passion perspective. I always like hearing that because passion really is that unique x factor that can take a book from being a, a great book to being a bestseller to being a phenomenon, and so he talks about that uh in a way that I think uh, will be helpful for those who either have something they want to write and publish or for those who may want to be an acquisitions editor themselves
1: well and I think too he talked about the importance of being passionate about your the topic or story that you're writing about because it's a long term thing this is yeah. this is a marathon not a sprint um so it's important that you, you do feel a lot of passion for it so that you can kind of you know, go the distance in terms of Proceeding through the writing process and then the publishing process and beyond.
0: He also, I thought this was funny when we talked about um, certain auctions, he described it as like Texas Hold'em, which is is so true. I mean, these auctions that we get into as agents and as editors, they can have the feel of, of a Texas Hold'em game and you got to have your poker face and all of that. So I think that'll be interesting um, insider sort of information that, that might be helpful for anyone who's about to enter into that part of the process.
1: So if you have any other questions for us um, or want to suggest topics for us to cover in uh, our podcast, please email us at info at and be sure and put podcast in the subject line. Also, if you are a writer and you're looking for other advice please check out our website at www.thebinderyagency.com. We have a variety of free articles on there, as well as some eBooks covering various aspects of writing and publishing.
0: Since we recorded this episode with Andrew Stoddard, he has been promoted to editorial director at Waterbrook and Multnomah, two imprints of Penguin Random House. Andrew Stoddard, thank you for joining us here in our podcasting studio for On Publishing. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do, your title at the company you work at, uh, the books you get to work on and and a little bit about who you are. Alex
2: Ingrid. Thank you so much for having me here with you guys today. It's fun to be a part of of, on publishing in it's early days. (laughs) Um, yeah, I am the lead acquisition editor for Waterbrook and Multnomah. We're two faith-based imprints of Penguin Random House. Uh, which is the largest publisher in the English-speaking world. One of the things that I really love about my job is that I get to look at ideas in a proposal stage or even earlier and help uh, envision what they could become someday. Um, and I know that you guys work really hard here on building out those proposals and others like you do the same thing. And we all have fun, I think, dreaming about what could be a book uh, before even those first pages are written. In terms of the type of content that we specialize in at Waterbrook and Multnomah, we really work closely with Christian living, authors, uh, big stage communicators. We work in memoir, nonfiction, fiction kids. Kids is actually growing a lot for us right now. It's a really mm-hmm. exciting time to be publishing into the kids' space. Awesome. And broadly, within the general market world, the types of books that you'd find at like a Target or a Walmart or a Barnes and Noble, Christian living is really on the rise. So it's a fun time to be doing this type of content.
1: Cool. Tell us a little bit about the challenges of your job. What is hard about being an editor and an acquisitions editor in particular?
2: Yeah, I think there are unique challenges to both aspects of those roles, the acquiring part and the editing part. And if you asked any editor or acquire throughout the industry, I think there'd be some pretty similar themes that surface regardless of the types of books they work on Mm -hmm. i imagine some of the same challenges that you guys face one of the biggest challenges i think as an acquirer is that um you just see so many great ideas it's difficult to know which ones to incentivize put energy behind and try to figure out which horse to bet on so to speak Mm um particularly in um our information age. There's so many things that are competing for people's eyeballs, whether it's Netflix or Hulu, Amazon, or even just soccer practice and family dinner and running around in the car with your kids. Um, Books are a time commitment. So it's really difficult not really to get someone to spend eight to $12 on a great book. I think oftentimes they kind of shirk back because it's a 12 to 15 hour commitment. Um, And there's just many things that are competing for their time and for their eyeballs. So uh, we have to be very choosy, I think all publishers do in this day and age, about which books they really put their energy behind. Uh, And oftentimes it means that there's some folks that are really great writers, but they just have to fight uh, to get space on shelves and space in front of people's eyes on digital shelves too. So I think that's one of the big challenges is that you just see things that could be a passion project or really fun or are a niche topic that's really important to you and you just really want to invest a lot of your time because it can be hundreds of hours that you spend working on a book with an author and you get excited about that but it's a little challenging when you realize there might not be the market for it even when you're enthusiastic about it so that's definitely a challenge editorially um i think one of the biggest challenges is Trying to figure out how to, um, at least for me, it's just time management. Um, there's so many different things that you could be doing to improve the quality of a book. And Even though there's an established flow to the way that we edit and work creatively with our authors, each voice is unique. Uh, each of their passions and gifts and writing style is unique. And so to really be able to get into what Cal Newport calls that deep work in between all the meetings and the phone calls and the business trips and to really have those big chunks of time, at least that's the way I like to edit, you know, in those longer stretches, it's hard for me to really get in the zone in a one or two hour chunk. I need that like three to six hour time where it's just me in the book. So finding those chunks to really go deep and, and really focus your attention solely on what you're working on, I think is one of the biggest challenges that a lot of editors face today. And many of the editors I talk to end up finding that time outside of business hours. Right. And it becomes just such a creative passion that you're kind of sneaking it in in mornings and nights and weekends. And uh, certainly there's office time devoted to it, but when you're really in love with
0: what you're working on, you just end up finding the time for it. But I think that's a real challenge editorially. I love hearing the passion for what you do. And, and also, and you, you don't always hear this in publishing this, you want to champion those books, even if they might be tough to get out there in the market. You love the writing. You love something about the book. I can sense that passion coming through, which is awesome. But I want to ask you a very, very simple question, stepping back a little bit. And like, what does acquisition mean for those who might be listening who have no idea? Because yeah. we all probably yep. know what an editor might be. But
2: yeah, what is that?
0: Like unpack that a little bit for us.
2: Yeah, that's a a fair question. And it's one that I really enjoy explaining when I'm at events or meeting new authors or even folks that are curious about what it is we do or how to get published. Um, Acquisitions in the book world is a lot like A&R in the music world. I think that's a great comp. Like your job is to go out and be that first point of contact uh, with talent that you think really has the potential to bring a big message to the page. Or it'd be like being a recruiter on an athletic team. You know, you have coaches, you've got players, you've got agents, and then you've got, you know, the talent that you're trying to bring in. So acquiring is really looking at, you know, that that senior class uh, that's going to be coming into the big leagues next year and kind of trying to figure out where your company should be investing their attention early, uh, just based off of their talent and natural gifts. So acquisitions is a bit of uh, predictive forecasting and a lot of, I think, relational legwork. <laughs> And then a lot of fun haggling with agents, working <laughs> through those deal points to make sure everyone's happy. So there's a lot of negotiation and contracts work yep. in, in the acquisitions role at any house. And I think that's something that is, is really fun and a strategic part of the job and, um, really pride myself on trying to make all of the deals that we do a win-win-win, where it really feels like, you know, Michael Scott says the win-win-win. I actually think that that exists. I do think it exists. You can make it a win for the author and for the agent and for the house. And when you do that... It really sets up a good rhythm for people who want to come back again and again and again, project after project after project. You can build those long-term relationships when that first deal works really well. Everyone walks away creatively and commercially happy.
1: Well, I think we often talk about the editor's role as being the champion. And I think that's an aspect maybe those outside publishing may not realize that, um, you know, you're the first one to get excited about a project, about an author. And then you are the one that has to kind of carry that excitement um, to the rest of the team and make sure that they're enthusiastic, that they understand the author and the message and the, the book idea um, and continue to be that voice of, you know, enthusiasm throughout the process.
2: Yeah. And creative direction. Right. 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 Because you're the one that's in the content early. Mm-hmm. You're seeing it develop. And so you kind of get to speak that vision Uh, for your author consistently over the team, yeah, and that's a really fun role.
1: Especially when maybe the, the words on the page don't quite match that vision yet, you're trying to kind of connect those dots for the rest of the team.
0: Absolutely. You see so much content every day. You're seeing proposals from agents like us. You're seeing manuscripts from authors. You're meeting with people at events. What makes you kind of go, yes, like believe in a project? Yep. What's the spark that catches your eye? And and listen, I know this is not an easy it's an art, not a science, not an easy thing to determine. So it's very particular to the house, the editor, and certainly the pub board once you once you bring it to your team. So what is it that jumps out to you? What are you looking for? I think that
2: sort of perfect scenario, and not every book comes in this way, truly. But that that moment that you get probably a handful of times out of the year after looking at hundreds of proposals, um, there's a couple of things that I feel like really line up. Uh, It's when you have a communicator. And I should say, too, just to back up real quick before I jump into this, like every genre is different. Um, Every uh, type of imprint focus is different. So these are just some things I think I look for when I'm out acquiring for Waterbrook and Multnomah. I'm sure there are some very similar themes across general market nonfiction. In fact, I know there are talking with my colleagues that work on other types of content. Um, But just to say specifically, you know, a few of these things, I think, are focused on the markets that we reach really well. Um, So for us, when I find a proposal or a communicator pre-proposal stage that has a big message that I think can run for a long time, that solves a clear problem, I really do feel like the books that work well in the nonfiction space, whether it's self-help, general market spirituality, or our focus in Christian market, faith uh, development, discipleship and growth, have a clear problem and solution. They're closing a gap in the reader's life, uh, but they're doing it in a way that is very entertaining and inviting and inspiring to the reader. So there's something that is big about the message, fresh about the way it's being communicated, and that the writer has a clear audience. It does not have to be massive, but they do need someone that they're regularly talking to about these ideas and that there's sort of this feedback loop that they've already developed. Um, platform is a big conversation no matter what type of non-fiction oh, yeah, the oh. platform <laughs> <laughs> that didn't
0: take long I know the buzzword
2: <laughs> it's such a buzzword but it's so variable it doesn't mean that you have to have 500,000 followers on some social media channel that's certainly helpful but it does mean that you have to have a clear audience that you are regularly communicate to that's engaged with the idea that you're bringing it just really helps in this day and age back to our conversation earlier about how noisy our, our screen time is. And there's so many things that are reaching for our attention. There needs to be an audience that's excited already about what it is that you're going to bring on the page. Um, passion is certainly important. Uh, I think some first-time authors underestimate not only the uh, incremental time commitment that writing and publishing will take throughout their week, but the long arc time commitment of the sort of almost three to four-year uh, commitment to writing, thinking, talking, promoting a singular topic. From the day that you sit down to write to the day that it comes to press to the day that you know you're four years out from it publishing and you're still willing and passionate to talk about this idea um, that just burns in your heart and you have passion for. So passion is a big thing. And then, you know, finally, sometimes, and this is not a prerequisite for all of them, but I'm sure you guys have seen this as agents too. It's just you read something, you watch something, you hear somebody, and they just have that X factor. Yes. And you know, yes. you, just, you just know it's super subjective. But after you've read hundreds of thousands of these proposals, um, that might be a bit of an overestimate, but maybe more in the Gladwellian sort of 10,000 hours camp, you just spend enough time looking with eyeballs on these type of documents, you just start to know, you can kind of feel it and intuit it, this, one, this one's
0: going to sing. Love that it. is a fun moment. <laughs> that is. And it's rare. It's hard to find. But I, I think you're right. Like there, there is that indefinable quality sometimes that comes in. If they have all the, the things you're looking for, the big idea, the platform and all these things, that's great. But sometimes you just got to go with your gut. And that's, that's what's so unique about this industry. I mean, it isn't just the science and the data and the numbers but although that's helpful
2: how often do you think you guys when you're looking to bring on a client will take that go with the gut moment (laughs) you can just kind of feel it and you're like yes this is someone we need to work with There's, there's something intangible but like fantastic
0: here that's a great question. We, we talk about proposals every day uh, around this table and look at manuscripts, look at new authors, um, and it, it's rare. We have very limited time like you do, but when we see something and, and there's a spark or there's something going on there, we feel like we can develop a little further. Um, like you said, even if there isn't 500, there aren't 500,000 followers or a big radio program or a podcast or whatever the case may be, if there's, there's something there, um, occasionally we'll take the risk. But not yeah. always, wouldn't you say, Ingrid? Yeah, I
1: think for me, I'm I'm a very intuitive person. So I make decisions with my gut all the time. And I think that's where an agent has a bit more prerogative to work with somebody they just really like, or you do have to see a message that can be uh, developed and sold. But I think it's cool to be able to just work with people that you really think are awesome and, and try to find a publisher that would be a good fit for them. But
0: it's true. There's so much we could talk about with your, with your role and what you do, but I'm sure you meet with people all the time who just come up to you and and they're at the very beginning and they want to say, and I'm sure this happens to you at parties all the time. So I have this book idea or my uncle has this book idea or whatever the case is. What do you tell people in that situation, uh, especially if you think there's actually potential there? And, and you know, where do they start, from, like day one?
2: I think it's important to preface this answer with the context that I think, at least, I've been told by friends that I tend to opt towards encouragement almost always. <laughs> That's just <the> part <laughs> a part of my personality. Person. So I'm going to answer this question uh, for the audience with that in mind. That I'm pretty generally a very positive person when someone has a creative idea, because I feel like there's always opportunities to kill a creative idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know Stephen Pressfield talks about the resistance a lot in uh, the, the war of art. And I think that that's a real thing that people face creatively. So even in the earliest days of incubation of an idea, I always want to encourage people to chase it down until either they reach a dead end or they lose passion for it of their own accord rather than the negativity or the naysaying of others being the thing that, that quells or crushes that creative dream. So I don't always see it. Um, but I try to ask good questions, sort of draw out the vision of like, where they want to take it. Yeah. Um, you know, this happens pretty much every time I think each of us gets on a plane, we yeah. fly somewhere. What do you do? What do you do? You know, I work in publishing. No way! I've got this crazy life story. And I think one of the reasons everybody has a book idea is because our lives are really dynamic. And if you ask people questions, they have lived fascinating stories this is one of the things that makes humans of new york so interesting yeah right is the idea that everyone has lived a very dynamic life and if you could walk a mile in their shoes you'd be blown away by the things that they've encountered overcome or experienced Mm -hmm. and it is true that each person that says i've got a great book idea a very small percentage of those will ever see the light of day even if they're going to self-publish or hybrid publish um But the very first step, I think, for someone that wants to write a book, that feels like they have a great idea, is to start writing anything. Just start brain dumping into a Word document or on a yellow legal pad the vision that you have for this book. I think one of the things that weeds people out the most, it's like that first year of law school, is just the commitment of getting 60,000 words plus in a document that's mildly enough cogent for you to come back and read it yourself. Um, But I think start writing, start trying to communicate with these ideas in a smaller circle, go to a writer's workshop, start blogging, uh, start start posting on it, uh, you know, on your Facebook, your Instagram, something where you're just starting to generate content on this idea over and over and over again periodically to see how people are engaging and responding. It's like having like a, a beta test like feedback loop early in your creative process where you can really look at what's working and whether or not you think it's gonna work in long form. Mm-hmm. And then I think the second step after you started to really build out the vision for the project um, is to start looking at comps. Look at other books that have similar ideas Look at how they performed. Looked at who's published them. Look at who's agented them. Mm. You can not only determine from a, a nonfiction book or a fiction book the publisher easily from the spine, the copyright page, a lot of times the agents are listed in the acknowledgements. Yeah. And so then you can start finding agents that really support talent like you believe you have who are going to get you the best exposure with traditional publishers. So that's a longer answer, but I think it's start writing, figure out who's doing what you want to do commercially, and find an agent who can get you in front of the right publishers. I think those are probably the, the, the three steps that I would recommend to a friend at a cocktail party. <laughs> that's
0: awesome. Very succinct, too. Actually, that's
1: very that's good answer. Yeah, you're like totally smart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I am an editor. It's
2: very bookish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so speaking of that, I'm curious why. You got into publishing. What appealed to you about this industry, and and how did it happen? How did you get your first job in publishing?
2: This is a fun story to tell, I think, especially in this room, because my first job in publishing was actually both with both of you. <laughs> um, this is true. This it is was true. an incredible experience, and I've stuck with it. What so here you? we are. I've absolutely loved it. I think publishing. Um, was a bit of an accidental adventure. I know a lot of people set out to work their way into the industry. It's their dream to become an editor. And I think it's a dream job for me now, but it was a dream that I found later. It wasn't something that I went to school with in mind particularly to do, but it's something that I'm very, very glad I landed in. So probably about... Uh seven or eight years ago, I was living in Chicago. I was working as an adjunct professor at a small college there, and then also working for a magazine part-time. I had done some graduate work and was planning on doing even more graduate work. Uh, I had a very particular interest in history. wanted to do PhD work, started scouting out all these different programs uh, that I could pursue my passion in uh, classical history. But the magazine work, was sort of this side hustle where I was writing articles occasionally, mm-hmm. writing book reviews, It's really how it started. One of the editors there would send me books to review and then I'd sort of do a quick 300 to 400 word write-up, send it back. It paid nearly nothing, but it was just really fun to be a part of shaping culture in real time. Mm-hmm. And I began to see the impact of the circulation that this magazine had in print and online. Uh, reaching lots and lots of readers in real time. And then I began thinking about the journal articles that I was going to dedicate my life to writing that maybe six or seven people would read throughout the course of my life. And I feel like that is a very noble pursuit. It's incredibly important work because it trickles down to popular thinking over time. Those six or seven readers become very influential professors, economists, leaders, historians themselves. They shape college students that shape the world right. um, and, and their thinking, and they just shape culture at large. So there's a huge import, I believe, to that type of intellectual work. But I found myself, you know, back to that, that passion piece, like chasing passions, I found myself really drawn to the way that culture was being shaped in real time through the magazine work and through the written word in particular. It just opened up something inside of me that I didn't even know was there. Uh, Right around that time, I met a publisher, who now sits at this table, uh, (laughs) um, who was looking for an acquiring editor at David C. Cook out here in Colorado Springs. And um, after a series of conversations with Alex and with you, Ingrid, um, just felt like it was a fantastic opportunity to start working in the books world. I knew that was sort of the next step after the limited amount of magazine work that I had that I wanted to work more long form just because it was like a format that I felt more comfortable with rather than journalism which is quick fast you know 24-hour cycles and turns right. um, I wanted to build things that took a little longer to build but mm-hmm. also might live a little longer in print and so I looked at a whole bunch of publishers in Chicago and in New York And through a series of events like this, this dream was sort of in my heart to work for a New York publisher. I just never realized that I'd be living in Colorado Springs when that dream was actualized. So spent a good amount of time working with you all at at David C. Cook, very much enjoying that. Um, And then kind of transitioned into Waterbrook and Multnomah not too long after that, uh, still working as an editor, still acquiring. And uh, I've been doing that for five years now this year, which is crazy. That happened really fast, but have loved every minute of it. So I do feel fair in saying that it was an accidental adventure, but it led to me finding a very specific calling that I
0: felt really settled in and really happy about. I'm grateful for that. So I know it's only been five years, but that is enough time to see books you're super passionate about get out into the world and maybe not do exactly what you hoped they would do yeah one of the things about this industry that is so brutal at least in 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 our experience and i think this is true of of writers first of all there's a lot of rejection as you're submitting things to publishers but publishers feel this too you get a book out into the world doesn't always do what you expect it to do in fact that's more likely the case um it's, it's pretty rare that a book exceeds expectations. So how do you, in the face of that difficulty and the challenge in the industry, how do you stay positive? You're obviously a very positive and encouraging person. Uh, we can hear it right now, but there is the tendency for some in publishing to get a little jaded. How do you avoid that?
2: You know, it's interesting. I was reading, I was reading over the weekend a couple different film blogs. The Telluride Film Festival was last weekend, and I love film. And it's something that I really enjoy following kind of on the side. I've never worked in film, probably never will, but it's just another creative industry where ideas are incubated. They're built out and delivered in different ways, but there are a lot of similarities between film and uh, the release of albums in the music world and also book publishing. And so it's fun to keep an eye on trends in those spaces. And um, some of the films that are released at a festival, like Telluride or Sundance, will get insane critical acclaim In their early days, and then they'll bomb at the box office. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the same thing can be true of really beautiful music. Um, You know, there's always the top forty performers, and then there's that sort of niche indie folk band that you find on Bandcamp randomly late one night, and they're they're totally your thing, but they're not going to be as commercially successful as Drake ever. Right. And I think it's totally true and fair. Uh, to have those sort of lanes in mind in the book world, too. And every time I acquire a book, it's a different race, I think. I'm a very competitive person, too. So it was a hard lesson to learn, I think, at first, that they all weren't running the same race, Mm -hmm. that you couldn't compare sales data on one title to another title. It's a completely different genre, a completely different audience, completely different budget, completely different lane. And you have to be very comfortable with the fact that as a society, since we move so quickly, oftentimes the most nuanced, beautiful work is a slower build for culture to receive than the big headlines. I think journalism works the same way. You know, you have those columnists that are brilliant writers and thinkers, and it takes time for those articles to churn and kind of catch on. But the impact that they can have on our cultural bearing over time is a lot richer than, you know, a BuzzFeed listicle. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of those things make the internet work and all different types of films make a studio successful and all different types of books really work for a house. So, you know, I've heard this stat thrown around that, you know, seven out of every 10 books everywhere uh, is a commercial hardship. And I just feel like that that can be true depending on the way that you look at it. And the same would be true of music and of film, where not every film the studio produces earns out to its potential. Even some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters technically underperform, even though they're selling hundreds of millions of dollars of tickets, because their budget was twice as much. And so I think shrewd publishing, intentional investment, allows you to bet on the little guy a little bit more in a way that's exciting and encouraging. And then you sort of just fix your focus around release. You give your author realistic, optimistic expectations, um, real goals, push goals, but that are different, I think, for every book. I think that's really important. Uh, So one of the ways I think that I stay really positive or try to stay really positive is by looking at the performance of similar titles, but also by thinking about the immeasurable subjective cultural impact of a title that may have sold poorly um, by commercial standards. You, you have no idea the ripple effects of the way that it shaped culture or has ignited a young mind or changed someone's heart or inspired someone to take a big step that may be a future public leader, public servant, that may be a really important teacher or educator, that may be an incredibly successful Wall Street banker or entrepreneur because they've grabbed an idea from a little book. And those are things you just can't measure. And those are the things that make publishing really exciting, but also really frustrating that there is a a noticeable, I should say, unnoticeable an unmeasurable, but significant cultural impact on some of the titles that may never have hit major New York Times lists or similar lists.
1: Well, I think that's why you have to really at your core believe in what you're doing believe in each book that you champion and be proud of it no matter what happens with the sales Um, believe that an author has a message or a story that needs to be shared
2: it's interesting too i know we've talked about this before at this table in other settings but um this idea that as an editor or even as an agent you have a voice in the book. It shouldn't override that of the author ever. Mm. Like you're trying to champion the author's voice, make their message heard. But I I think that our voices are heard in the long haul over the course of our portfolio. The things that we're trying to curate is essentially our passive unknown voice to the world. And that feels really good when there's a a of products in there that are all speaking to similar themes and shaping culture in similar ways. They work in a symphony rather than having to have everyone be a top 40 hit. Mm-hmm. And that's a cool feeling.
0: I love the way you you just talked about all that, like like you Ingrid. That's the reason we're all in this business. There is something, it's a it's a huge privilege to come alongside somebody and take a book out to the world. As you said, even if it sells and by commercial standards, what is what is poor sales? It's hard to say. Even if it sells a few thousand copies though, who knows who's reading those books. What a, what a joy, we get, to, we get to steward that process for people. So I love the ha- how you just described that. That's, that's I mean, true. how many famous visual artists that we
2: appreciate from the Renaissance period and beyond were commercial failures in yeah, their lifetime? That's right. A lot. Yeah, a <laughs> lot.
1: Most of them. Yeah, that's right,
2: <laughs> running around cutting off their own ears and trying to figure out which way was up. That's right. Their works have impacted culture in immeasurable ways. And so it's just, it's a different pursuit than trying to look at, you know, if you're manufacturing desk chairs and you put X in, you should be getting Y out. Yeah. We're, we're all businesses at the end of the day. We need to be getting Y out, but it's just not the same as manufacturing a household good. It's a, it's a creative and cultural and societal good. I really do believe that publishing, all of us that are around different tables for various reasons in it, are doing a societal good. It's important.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think we've been... We've been impacted or transformed by a book ourselves, yes. you know, by the words on a page that somebody else wrote. Um, and so that kind of propels us and compels us to um, find the next
0: one. That's true. Um, you mentioned something I just want to jump on real quickly uh, in your in what you said a few minutes ago. You mentioned shrewd publishing and mm-hmm. and I just want to get into some of the nuts and bolts. Like, what does that mean to you? And I think every editor, you know, in some ways, if, if you acquire 10 books a year or 30 books a year, however many you're acquiring, you're your own sort of little business in a sense. Every publisher you know, same thing. You're yep. curating a list, as you said. So what does that look like for you? I'm just curious because I think it, it's definitely an art, but everybody has sort of their idea and method um, for, for some of those those nuts and bolts.
2: Yeah, I think it's different for every house depending on how many titles you publish, the way that you build out your list. Um, and we talked about some of those, those X-Factor type books and X-Factor type communicators, but we all realized too see that that's not every book on the list there are fantastic communicators um, that are building something that have a great audience that have kind of started from a place where they have a really clear message that's formed by the time it reaches your desk Um, and so in terms of strategy and list building i think that's also an art and a science it's a very collaborative art and science at most houses where you have someone like an editorial director or editor-in-chief who's really curating the curators, someone who's leading all the different editors in terms of what the list needs. The publisher sits behind list building very heavily They keep an eye on list balance and the types of titles that are coming out at what part of the year versus Mm -hmm. titles that are coming out that are similar at other houses in the same time of the year. So true publishing, I think, looks a lot like knowing your lane and having discipline to stay in it, even if there's something that looks really enticing but that you know your house doesn't really do consistently. Um, Ooh, I think good. that's that's something that's a hard discipline because as an editor, you can get creatively passionate about something, but if you know that the mechanisms aren't in place to be able to launch that well, then you, you oftentimes have to figure out um, what's best for the author, what's best for the message. Simultaneously, you can look at things um, that are very hot commodity, very competitive in the industry. Most publishers knew who the know who their closest competitors are, And you have to figure out, to me, you know, you can like push this metaphor so far, but to me, it often feels like at auction, it's a bit of like playing Texas Hold'em with, you know, 10 people that you've gotten to know over the last five to 10 years. Everyone's coming to the table, they're bidding, the information's being, you know, sort of passively disseminated carefully throughout whoever sets the rules for said auction and so you're trying to really weigh your house's like pain points. At what point is this no longer a commercially viable investment for us? Yeah. And at what point do we feel like this says something creatively that we really want to be about, and we have to go hard? Yeah. Um, so strategic list building, I think, has a lot to do with knowing when to be competitive, when to hold them, when to fold them, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but then also what you're about and publishing consistently into that, so that your house has a voice. I know that most readers don't pick up their book and look at the spine and and recognize who the publisher is. Um, they, They pay attention to who the author is, but as a house you develop a voice in the marketplace and so doing what you do well consistently I think is one way to develop a clear strategy in list building. I'm sure you guys are about that work too as an agency. Most of the agents that I work with they know what their lane is, they know what they're about, they know what they're trying and what they're building um, what's that process been like for you guys as you've built this agency?
0: That's a good question. I mean, we certainly have a few different areas that we work in consistently and we know very well. Um, however, uh, I think over time we we will and we are kind of growing into categories that we want to work in and it and I think that's. That's a process. I think if you try to do everything and become all things to all people, you're not going to succeed in any of those areas. But if you choose some key categories, and we've chosen a few, and I think that will continue to evolve over time, then, then I think you can really excel in them. It's important, and uh, you know, for those who are out there looking for an agent, I think it's important to have someone who knows the category in which they work. And therefore, not only do they know the books and the, the, the books that are working, the types of topics that are important, but also they know the editors and the publishers personally. And uh, there's some open doors, so so to speak, to the publishing industry. Yeah. But, yeah, you can't you can't do everything. So we have three or four categories that we work in and we have a few that we're looking at developing. We were talking about that yesterday. Um, and I think that will continue to grow and change over time as our team changes over time. Um, My hope is that every agent picks two, three, four categories and just becomes an expert in those categories. Um, And that's what I've done personally. And so, um, yeah, so it's a fun process. We have a a line on our website that I I do believe, um, and the line is, one book can change everything. Um, And I, I put that on there when we first started because... For me, that was true. There were books that changed everything for me, um, and not very many of them. But um, and I can remember a few times in my life where my life turned in a certain direction because of a book I read. Um, and I mean, golly, like what a what a huge thing to to get from someone who put their time and effort into a book. So I'm just curious, is there a book or multiple books um, that that changed a big moment in your life or were just important for you uh, personally?
2: You know, it's it's hard to narrow that down to a book, um, often because when I find an author that I really love, I'll be a serial reader of their work. So sometimes i will end up conflating the titles of what they said and what worked, but there are voices that through the written word that have consistently had big impact on uh, my thinking, my view of the world, my view of self, um, have been inspiring, have been sobering um, in different seasons. Um, So I'll I'll give a few. One that I read most recently, um, which was a fiction work that really surprised me in terms of its ability to have – long-lasting um, meaningful impact was George Saunders, Lincoln and Bardo. Wow. Um, I have never read a book that was written that way where it sort of mixes genres of clippings of historical documents and then the prose dipped into sort of like a playwright format. Um, for those that aren't familiar, it examines like a 24 to 48 hour period right on the heels of the passing of Willie Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son. So part of it is, I don't know, percentages, 20, 25 to 30% of it is historically accurate, where it's just clippings from all of these primary documents that show what happened and developed in Lincoln's life on the eve of his son's passing the day after his passing. And then the rest of the book is fictionalized around that and play form, and it's told from the perspective of three sort of ghosts that almost interact like the hecklers from the Muppets. They're hilarious, (laughs) and they're, um, you know, jabbing and and jiding of one another throughout the book, but they're the ones that are sort of unreliably, reliably telling you the story Mm -hmm. of Lincoln visiting his son in the graveyard, the Bardo, um, which I think is this otherworldly place where um, Willie hasn't passed into eternity yet, but is still sort of able to interact with Lincoln in sort of a semi-coherent way. Um, and it was just so beautiful. I found myself taking notes throughout its writing. It won the Man Booker Award, and um, I could totally see why. And I think one of the things that just really stuck with me was the ability of this particular work of fiction to ask such important Existential questions. Mm -hmm. Questions that everybody asks Why are we here? Where are we going? Where did we come from? Um, And most importantly, like how do we thrive and have hope in the face of great hardship? Mm -hmm. And even though it was a fictionalized version of Lincoln, um, his very vulnerable breakdowns and then his resolve to lead a divided nation on the other side of his son's passing, which could have been cause for many to throw in the towel altogether, I found very inspiring and very encouraging. So I would highly recommend that book. Wow.
0: It's a good one. I have not read it. I, I started it and I it was too. so different. <laughs> I now I'm inspired to, to go try again. To go try again. Exactly. Yeah I tried it's,
1: to I tried to listen to the audio book and I just couldn't it was like, I don't know how
2: you would process it as an audiobook honestly well, I mean I've heard so it, amazing
1: things about it because it's yep. like a performance all these different really? actors yeah holy cow um, were involved in creating the audiobook it was quite a undertaking yeah. but
2: I also like yeah, George I, Saunders because he wrote the most recent liner notes for Jeff Tweedy's last album warm Boom. and they're beautiful it's like the most beautiful liner wow. notes I've ever read <laughs> second to or right alongside um, seeing Dave Eggers write the liner notes for Andrew Bird's most recent album. Ooh, so this is becoming kind of a thing where these different authors yeah. are connecting. So Dave Eggers and Andrew Bird went to high school together in the oh, suburbs really? of Chicago. So they um, have a long-standing friendship. And it was really cool to read their back and forth about Andrew's creative process on those liner notes. I want
0: to check that out. Yeah, I yeah. love oh, You're a yours. huge takeout I uh, read it's everything good. he write yeah. I know.
2: For sure. So, And then one book in the, the faith space that is um, very popular and very well beloved but that I had never read was Eugene Peterson's Along Obedience in the Same Direction. Mm-hmm. With Eugene's passing a year, year and a half ago, I think his work, his body of work has been on the hearts and minds of so many pastors and leaders and authors that I work with. He's probably one of the most perfectly quoted voices that I see in books that I'm working on as an editor in the faith space, especially with young pastors and leaders. And what's amazing about that is that his life for those that knew him was not incredibly flashy or gaudy or, or big in any way. It was very simple, but his body of work um, is just so pure and beautiful and powerful that it's just hard to deny its transformational power. Uh, long obedience traces, I think it's 12, it's been a little bit since I've read it, 12 Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, Mm -hmm. and each chapter, maybe it's 16, um, need to go back and and double check. But it traces the the Psalms of Ascent. Eugene posits uh, were sung by the Israelites every year as they walked into Jerusalem for a particular festival. So it was a way of remembrance and traveling, but it goes through all of these different Layers and expressions of human emotion and experience, all the Psalms, some very high highs, some very low lows, some very close connectivity to God, some very disparate uh, tension and wrestling and feeling of farness from him. Hmm. Um, But the way that Eugene cobbles that all together in his signature style, um, particularly in the ways that he addresses head on, the ways in which our time on this planet is a bit like a pilgrimage a journey rather than a rootedness um, I have found very comforting um, and it's something that I kind of come back to regularly so I know that's very much in the zeitgeist but just because something in the zeitgeist doesn't mean it's not true I guess
1: Right.
0: Uh, that's a beautiful book. It's been a long time since I've read it. So we talked about the acquisition side of editing. Yep. Um, there's another side of editing, too, and it's the substantive copy editing side. Manuscript development. Exactly. Um, how much of that do you do in your job today? And... and not that we need to go into the nitty gritty details, but I think it is interesting for those who may be a little fearful of what their editor is going to do to their manuscript. Like, what is that? <laughs> what does that process look like um, for you? Are you going to awesome. go in there? Is it going to come back to the uh, the, the author red and yeah. marked up yeah. like crazy? And should they be fearful or is that a good collaborative process? What does that look <laughs> like? Well, what's interesting, I think,
2: is I think this is true of most editors is that we've actually never written a full length book ourselves, but I have written you know, sizable articles in, in different periodicals, blog posts, other things that pass through the hands of someone who's editing my work. And so I think it's a good habit for editors to be writing often and to be edited by someone else just to keep that experience fresh in your mind. Because uh, oftentimes the drafts will come back to me of things that i am written, I'd be like, that's not what I said, or how did that end up that way? <laughs> but then other times, too, the best sorts of editors amplify the thing that I was trying to say and make it so much more clear uh, and powerful and concise. Um, that I become wildly grateful for their work. And so that's my hope as an editor to be more like the latter than the former with the authors that I work with. And, you know, your question will it come back all red and <laughs> look like this bloody piece of meat that's been like shredded up and lands back in your inbox or on your proverbial desk? Sometimes. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it just depends on what's come in. And that actually doesn't even mean that it was a, a poorly written or bad book. Uh, It could be an incredible idea that just needs some some retooling, uh, some rewriting in places. But some of the books that I've had that have been very commercially successful have been heavy edits. And some of the books that I've had that have been very commercially successful have been very light edits. Um, Everyone writes and communicates differently. And so trying to find someone's voice on the page, particularly if they're a first-time author takes some go rounds Um, and finding a good synergy between author and editor. It takes a lot of trust. Like it it takes an awful lot of trust to deliver a book that truly is only going to have your name on it in big, bold letters as the author to hand that off to somebody else and allow them to work into that with you in such an intimate way around your message or what it is that you're trying to say. So I am always grateful for the trust that's established between author and editor And I know that it takes a lot of time to build trust, um, to be uh, in a working rhythm uh, where you can almost in a shorthand way skip some of the pleasantries and just be able to like blast right into like what needs to be accomplished. But that takes usually a couple books.
0: That's a huge thing. I mean that – I know a lot of authors who get really fearful about that very, very vulnerable process. Uh, Don't change my words, you know. But I think if that trust develops, then they'll say, "Okay, you're going to make it better. You're here to make it better. Yeah.
2: I, I know other editors that do a similar thing or have similar practices, but when I'm in a project doing that sort of deep work um, where it's really intense editorial work with someone building a, a, what I hope to be a beautiful book, one of the things I like to do is listen to, if they're a verbal communicator, listen to their podcast as much as I possibly can. So if I'm running or lifting or in the car... Um, I usually am trying to listen to their podcast, so I start hearing their voice, their idioms, their expressions, their natural stops and starts and the way that they execute jokes and illustrations. And then if they're an established written author, I'll try to read um, as much of their content as I can get my hands on before building this new thing with them. So I have a foundation of where they've been um, before we establish kind of where we're going together as a team. You had a
1: thought on that, Ingrid? Oh, I was just going to add, I think uh, one of your other responsibilities as an editor is to help make sure the author is actually communicating effectively. Yes. You know, making sure as the first reader that what they have written is going to connect in the end and um, that, you know, if it's fiction, that it's going to make sense, that it flows. So there's a lot of different ways or different lenses that we use as we read and edit a book.
2: Now, when you're working on a proposal, or in the many years that you spent in the editorial chair, Ingrid, did you feel like um, how how did you I'll say it this way, How did you balance reading for your author versus reading for your reader?
1: It's a very integrated um, process for me, and I think that's one of the most fun aspects of publishing is everything you know we've made reference to books and music and film like all of the things that we are taking in sort of informs our experience of a manuscript Um, and we're trying to make sure that the author um, comes across on the page as they intend to Um, so that's both ensuring that they're communicating clearly, that the reader is going to actually, you know, pick up what they're putting down, and also that they're going to be really proud of the work once it's published, that it's going to represent accurately who they are and the story or message they set out to communicate. Um, I guess it sounds really complicated, but once you kind of get into it, once you get into the deep work of it, it really uh, involves every aspect of who you are, what you're bringing to to your role as an editor, and um, it's a really collaborative process, too. Like, I would always tell authors I was working with, you know, I see this as a conversation. The things that I'm pointing out, you don't necessarily have to accept every change I make, but it hopefully will allow you to think about what you've written and figure out, okay, maybe I wasn't totally communicating clearly mm. what I meant. I
0: completely agree. I think you both have kind of referenced this. The editor has a voice on the page as much as the, the author does. You may not realize it or see it, but um, that editor, you know, makes his or her presence felt in, the, in that way.
1: And all the while we are trying to honor the author's voice. So we are not trying to insert ourselves into a book, um, but trying to make sure that what they're saying is fully
0: themselves. Andrew, you've spent a little time with us here. I think uh, we'll end with one last question, unless you have anything more Ingrid, what's on your bedside table right now? Let's ask that. Like, what are you reading right now? Or what are you excited to read in the coming weeks months? I know for me, I have books all around the house that are, I'm (laughs) intending to read and I may or may not get to, but for you, like what's fun to read personally? What are you, what are you excited about? Well, my
2: bedside table uh, is not maybe the best metric of what I am personally reading right now, as we just had a little girl. Oh, that's right. Yay. We just had our daughter, Margot. Yeah. She's like two months old and a couple weeks here. So my bedside table is littered with wonderful children's book. Um, but they're actually, no, it's been so long. This is our first child, and it's been so long since I've read a children's book. And last night, I read to Margot The Giving Tree uh, by right. Shel Silverstein. And I was, like, almost crying by the time I was reading I was like, the tree is like a parent. <laughs> My parents, they gave us so much Margot, We're going to give you so much of this world so beautiful and emotionally moving and the words were sparse and the illustrations were minimalist it was just beautiful um so kids books are so fun to pick up and i'm already looking forward to reading through like narnia and harry potter as she gets older and just like giving like these magical worlds and, and, and enchanting the world that we live in so kids books are very much on my horizon and bedside table right now one that i just started to dip into Um, you know, for my own thinking is I just picked up uh, David Brooks, the second mountain. Yeah. Have you guys read that one? Oh man. I I know there are many uh, fans that have followed David Brooks work for a long time. This is actually the first of his that I've ever read. Uh, I really love the way that he critically appraises the way that we should be valuing, the middle third or second half or whatever you want to call it of our lives. You know, a lot of different authors break down the world that we live in in terms of spiritual or personal formation into thirds or halves. And, um, you know, another one that's like formational in that space that I've been reading is Ronald Ruhlheiser's Sacred Fire. He kind of talks about those years between 30 to 60. Um, And the way that he brings uh, human development to bear on our spiritual development, I think is actually very beautiful, But the metaphor that Brooks has and the different way that he writes in Second Mountain, Um, And I'm still getting into it. So I don't know if I quite see the whole arc on it yet, but it's this idea that the first mountain we climb in life is typically something we choose, whether it's college or marriage or a career. But the second mountain is a hurdle or a challenge that is really defining, that's thrown into our lives that we do not choose. And the make or break of the second half of life is how you choose to climb and approach that second mountain with a moral vision. Mm -hmm. And it is really fascinating the way that he breaks down sort of the cultural uh, tendencies or the way that the world that we live in has been shaped, that we've received passively in terms of responding to challenge. You know, there's flight or fight uh, kind of components that are built into our human psychology, but I think he really looks closely at how, Uh, Millennials in particular and Gen X as well have been acculturated to face the second mountain, whether poorly or excellently. Uh, Depending on their circumstances and uh, the way that they've been shaped by their experiences. So um, I'm fascinated to see the way that this book concludes and and grateful that I got to pick it up.
0: Yeah,
1: that sounds interesting.
0: Uh, I got to pick that one up too. Yeah. I added
1: several to my list. And the
0: Giving Tree, of course. The Giving Tree. We all love the Giving Tree. It's fantastic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ingrid and Alex. It's been a pleasure to be in the Bindery headquarters. With you guys and to be able to discuss so many things about books and culture. Always fun. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode of On Publishing. If you loved what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and post a review.
0: This episode was edited by Joey Howell and the music was provided by Not The King. And remember, until next time, one book can change everything.